Well, good morning. Um, I, I want to begin just by saying I, I found out like several times from other people that I was preaching here um, because apparently Joe is quite an evangelist. Um, so there, I, literally the dean of our school was like, so I hear that you're preaching at Joe's church this week. I'm like, oh, great. Um, so, but really excited um, to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm not sure of your, of your approaches to things, so I'm riffing um, with some things this morning. I wanted to invite us to do a scripture reading. I don't know how you're used to doing that. I like to stand as we read the scriptures, and I would love it if someone would volunteer to read our passage for us, just right from where you are, just so we can have a voice from the congregation to read. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, starting at the end of chapter 12. So you'll read verse 31, and then go to chapter 13, verse 13. So whoever wants to read, just go for it when you've got it and you're ready. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 31 to chapter 13, verse 13. Our prayer is that God may bless the reading of his word this morning. Amen. You can be seated. So I have to be honest, I, uh, I'm grateful that Jason invited me to preach 1 Corinthians 13, and not, for example, like chapter 6 or 7 or 8 or 9. Um, <laughs> So I'm very, very grateful to, to be able to address what is obviously a, a very common passage, one that we often hear uh, usually in, in like wedding ceremonies or things like that um, or see put up on the wall somewhere. And so we're going to talk about love this morning. And the name of the sermon is Getting in the Way of Love. And it has a kind of a double entendre, right? So getting into the way of love, but also the things that get in the way of love, of us getting into that way of love. And so we're going to be talking about, about how Paul describes love, but it's hard really anywhere, whether it's in church context or out, out and about, whether we're in, at work or school or wherever we may be, to talk about love, to really know what we're talking about, right? It's a word that's been used more to mean less <laughs> in recent memory or to mean way too many things. Um, it never has a word brought more confusion rather than clarity when we want to. I mean, this is the same word that we use to talk about our spouses and french fries, right? So it's a very challenging thing to really talk about love in a, in a clear way. When, when we say that we're, we're called to love others, when we say that, that God is love, we feel and see the limits of our own language. As uh, Bishop Tom Wright once said, the English word love is trying to do so many different jobs at the same time that someone really ought to sit, sit it down and teach it how to delegate. Where there's confusion or lack of clarity about what love is and what it can look like, we tend to fall victim to sort of these different ways of living. We can, we can still think maybe that we're trying to act in love, but we can um, find ourselves following more like ways of power or coercion or, or maybe even apathy or justifying wrongdoing if we're not careful because we haven't well-defined what we mean when we say love. Also, there's this presence of fear and anxiety in this call to love. It does this subtle work in us, moving us off the way of following Jesus. And before we know it, we're doing something. And as Paul says, it's worthless. So the question arises, what do we mean when we say love? And more importantly, 
how do we align with this most excellent way? And I have to get this out of my head. This song has been like banging around in my head for like the past 15 minutes of the what is love. Like, <laughs> baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Like that's in my head. I had to, you know, sometimes you have to say something just to get it out. Now it's in your head, so you're welcome. Um, that's love right there, right? Uh, no. Um, but as a community of people who are meant to be defined as loving, there often seem to be things that get in the way of the proper expression of love, even amongst people who claim to follow the way of love, right? Disunity in local congregations or amongst the vast church, the wider church, theological squabbles and disagreements, which I'm sure you guys have never been a part of, issues of conscience that kind of divide us, cultural arguments, and even the abuse or misuse of, of, of spiritual or positional authority by leaders in the church. No longer is it they'll know we are Christians by our love. You guys remember that song that came out, I believe it was written in the 50s or 60s, trying to provoke congregations to work together, actually written by a Catholic priest, I believe, um, as a way of trying to unite this youth movement to bring people together. But unfortunately, that's not what we are known by primarily in our world. So what do we do? Today, my, my concern is to get us to identify the things that often get in the way of love and, and to invite us to get ourselves into the way of love. And, and I want to begin by declaring this good news for us today. It's so important that we hear this that we have access to this way of love and together we can participate and grow in this eternal and powerful way of love. And we can do that right now, right where you are. Paul's words here bring us great, great hope in the midst of this challenge that we see around us, this challenge to love outside of us, but also this tension we feel internally of how do we love. So I want to begin by just talking about this, these first key words. They help to really frame our understanding. We read them at the end of chapter 12. But I will show you a more excellent way. Paul has been covering a lot of ground in this letter. And I understand you guys have been on quite a journey through 1 Corinthians. And not, this is not your first time as a church community, right? You guys have done this before. Um, so well done. I heard you spent about, what, five or six weeks on four verses somewhere in there, 1 Corinthians 6. Okay, seven weeks? Seven weeks. All right. So this, this, this uh, should maybe provoke some other things to mind. Paul is, is kind of taking a pause in his letter to sort of bridge together these two parts of, of, his, uh, of his letter. You know, discussions about divisions and, and idolatry and sexuality. I mean, certainly these are not simple topics um, to wrestle through even, either then or now. But this, this chapter seeks to sort of bridge together this idea of the playing your part in the body. And then what you'll look at after this in chapter 14, of this idea of proper order in the worshiping community. And I think Paul is very intentional to stop here and say, love is key. If we're going to talk about playing our part, if we're going to talk about how we relate to each other and how we, we worship together, we ha- you have to have this understanding of this excellent way of love. And as I mentioned before, this passage, we're often used to hearing it in wedding ceremonies, but I, I think Paul would find that really confusing, uh, to be honest. I know maybe you even had it read at your wedding, but as a matter of fact, I think if Paul was interested in talking about marital love, he probably would have talked about this earlier, right? Like in chapter 7, 
when he gets super romantic talking about marriage, right? <laughs> if you can't contain yourselves, you should probably get married. I mean, that's, that's, that's Paul's advice. But it's really not great. You should really be like me and not be married. But if you can't handle it, just go ahead and do it. Whatever, right? Paul, ever the romantic. Um, not only get me wrong, though, Paul is very much interested in love, but he's most concerned with how it plays out, not just specifically in the marital life, but in the life of the church. And that's what he's talking about here. This is a message for all of us. I don't know if you've been in a sermon where a sermon series where they're talking about marriage and you're one of the single people there and you're like, I just want to tune this out right now. This is for you to tune in. This, this pathway of love is for all of us who are seeking to be a part of this faith community. What we get is not this sentimental picture of love, right? Like something that we embroider and put on a wall somewhere and think that's nice. But it's a very beautiful account, a rigorous, self-giving, long-suffering, rejoicing way of being in relationship, this most excellent way of love. So, I don't want to deal right away with what those things that Paul says at the beginning uh, where he talks about, you know, if I, if I can speak in tongues and, and if I prophesy. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want to talk about actually how Paul seeks to positively and negatively define what love is, these words that he brings. Starting in verse 4, he describes it first positively as patient and kind, right? Love is patient and kind. These connote both like kind of a passive and active qualities of love. It puts up with a lot. It's patient, it endures, but it also actively moves towards others in kindness and generosity without thought of repayment. And then I love these these action words. Love jumps into action. Rejoicing in the truth, bearing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. And I want to say this. Sometimes people have wrongly interpreted this to kind of think that you're a doormat, right? Well, I just endure everything. I just take it all. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at there. He's talking about the capacity of love to, no matter the amount or scope of things that come your way, you have the capacity to endure. That's what he's talking about. That no matter what it is, you can endure, you can bear, you can hope. This helps us better define this this agape love, as Paul sees it, the identification of ourselves with God's interest in others. A genuine and selfless concern for the well-being of others. A genuine and selfless concern for the well-being of others. He also paints kind of negatively after that, right? And a lot of people have noticed that he uses more negative words than positive words to talk about. Well, I can tell you what love is, but let me tell you what it's not, (laughs) right? Let me tell you what love is not. And he uses these words. He's less than subtle here, saying, love is not envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, irritable, resentful, probably all of the things many of us struggle with already this morning, right? And getting out the door and being here today, right? Love does not insist on its own way or rejoice in wrongdoing. Now, since you've all been sitting in this 1 Corinthians letter for a while, do these words sound familiar to you? A lot of commentators have noted that every single one of these phrases, these negative phrases, can be tied to things that Paul has already dealt with in his letter. (laughs) Ouch. So he's saying, listen, love is painted positively like this. It's kind, it's patient. But here's what it's not. 
all the things that you're doing. That's not love. And it begs the question. I mean, as, as they would have heard this letter read to them, they would have been thinking, oh, that is, yep, that's us. Jealousy, feeding the quarrel surrounding faction, factionalism, right? Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Paul, right? The proud and boastful statement of one part of the body saying to another, I don't need you. The approval and rejoicing over sins that aren't even tolerated amongst the pagans. Paul's laying out love positively and negatively, defining it that way, and he's basically begging the question, here's what love is, here is what love is not, which sounds like you. And so after describing this love, I want us to begin to see what, we can, what, what can actually get in the way of love, get in the way of our experiencing and, and practicing of love. This is where we can relate back to the gifts which Paul is describing. The beginning of this passage, he says that if you speak in tongues, I mean, this is a problem for all of us. We speak in tongues, we don't have love. Um, that you're a, <laughs> I don't know what kind of church you are. I'm just, you know, I'm saying. Um, then you're a clanging cymbal or a sounding gong. Now, this for sure makes us think of something loud and annoying. Um, I was noticing, uh, do you guys normally have drums in here? Is that hard because of the acoustics? Or are you? Yeah, it's challenging, right? Um, but have you ever been in an environment where the drums are just overwhelming? Right? Now, I love a good, I, I'm a musician, so I love like a really solidly mic'd kick drum that kind of you feel it right here, like that, that's great. But if that's all you're hearing or experiencing, it gets a little bit annoying. But Paul, I think, may be hinting at something pretty significant here. Um, you know, Paul, as a good Jew, would have grown up singing the Psalms, and I imagine that maybe he had in mind Psalm 150 that says this, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his surpassing greatness. Now listen to this, the instructions of what to use. Praise him with trumpet sound, with lute and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with clanging cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. I like that, that he goes on to describe. Not just the clanging ones, but the loud crashing ones. Those are good too. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. But I got to thinking, imagine like in, in a worship band, if there was only a drummer and all he had was a crash cymbal. Like that's it. That's the whole worship team is the crash cymbal. Now I've been in some environments that have been stripped pretty bare, but usually have a you know, piano or an organ. Or I, My favorite one was all they had was just a, like a little like cajon drum. That was it. And it was just the voices and rhythm. That can be really helpful. But if it's just a really... Not just a symbol, but a loud, crashing, clanging symbol. And that's how you're going to lead worship. That can be a little challenging. It's kind of a comical picture, right? Um, and it's not really helpful. And, and similarly, like what he brings up these other ideas, like prophesying, knowledge, or sacrifice. If it doesn't connect to the needs of others, and if it doesn't come from a deep place, or a, a place of deep love for the interest of others, Paul doesn't just say that it's annoying, he doesn't just say that it's weird or not his taste or style. He says this is way worthless. It's nothing. Even if it's really good. Even if it's the best sermon you've ever heard, but it wasn't delivered in love. There's this, um, 
there's this idea that everyone needs to use their gifts and use them in proper proportions and at proper times, angled toward the interests and love of the other person. There's this concept of um, the Amish and the old order Mennonites. Um, anyone come from that background or tradition, Mennonite or Amish? I didn't think so, but I thought it'd be fun if there, that was the case. Um, they have a word that they use to sort of describe their community ethic of love, and it's the word Galassenheit. You guys want to say that with me? Galassenheit. Now, it's not what you say when somebody sneezes, even though it sounds a lot like that. Galassenheit. As with many words, I mean, especially German words, which are really fun words, they can be hard to translate and for us to really understand what they mean. Um, but one Mennonite describes it in this way. I love this. Galassenheit is a yielding of self-will and autonomy to the community, believing that true redemption and love is created through the selflessness of yielding my rights to the wisdom of the gathered. This concept ends up playing itself out in a variety of practices in these uh, Mennonite or Amish um, traditions, surrendering of property ownership rights to the community. The idea of individual property ownership uh, is not often common. Submission to the church community in decision-making. Um, there are even uh, rights for doing this that sort of, even in how they sometimes will choose their ministers that will cast lots still to, to this day, leaving this up to the community and to the spirit to guide. Uh, rejection of taking pride in one's individual work all these sort of things. But this concept is embodied most clearly in how they sing. So how many of you have ever been to um, like shape note singing or sacred harp singing? It's an, a style of a cappella singing, um, specifically amongst the Amish and Mennonite communities. You can find these if you just Google search it. You can find they do a lot of these hymn sings in different areas. And what it is, is you gather, and you gather differently than we're gathered here this morning. So everyone, you guys are all facing me, like I'm the one that just has something to give you, right? Um, but there, they actually do more of like um, set up in a square, all facing one another. And people who can sing different parts, much like a choir, will sing, sit in their different sections, much like you would have sopranos, altos, baritones, bass, that sort of thing. And what they'll do is they have their hymnals that shows their specific note as their part to sing. And they will sing together, and they're literally making chords in the way that they're singing. And sometimes there will be certain notes that drone, and sometimes there will be other notes that kind of move up and down. And it's so important. They've intentionally created the style of singing so that every part matters. Every part matters. It's not like going to sort of a concert environment where you wonder, I, I mean, I've been in some like worship in, you know, concerts and that sort of things, and I wonder, is it even important if I sing right now or not? Because... I can't even hear myself, um, but I can certainly hear all that that's going on in front of me. This is a very different environment. It's changed even by who shows up and who doesn't. So this idea of community ethic, this Galassenheit, means that you show up, you sing your part when you're supposed to sing your part, and you yield when it's not your turn to sing. I was reading, I read about this, and actually, um, because this is what I do for fun, is read introductions to old uh, Mennonite hymnals, and so, um, <laughs> so, but 
But I, I, don't, I think you're somewhat accustomed to having a pastor who likes to read, so I figured that was okay. Um, but I found this to be really interesting about um, basically as they were revising their hymnal, they used this as a guiding practice of saying even we wanted to create space to hear each other's stories. We wanted to create space to hear what's going on in people's communities and yield to the work of God in somebody else. This is the act of love embodied in singing and in community. This is what Paul is getting at here, this idea of of yielding. The worship of God is incomplete and it's deficient when we don't sing our part. It can be literally and figuratively discordant, right? So to put it most plainly, the gifts that you're able to use, those you've been, that have been given to you by God, and this is key for Paul, these gifts, they're not ultimately for you. They're for others. And they're for building up and equipping the church. When gifts aren't used for their intended purposes, when they're used as ends in and of themselves, when they're used apart from the way of love, they can actually work against the way of love. I don't think I need to prove this point to you, right? Rarely does a week go by without us hearing of continued schism in the church, of misuse of authority, as I mentioned earlier. The, 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 the stories, this is what confounds me oftentimes, the stories of the fall of incredibly gifted and talented leaders, people who have amazing gifts. No one would deny that. But perhaps they fell off the way of love And as a result, it hasn't amounted to much. There's a lot that's been done in the name of, quote, holding to the truth or, quote, defending the gospel or keeping the faith. And these aren't bad phrases, but I think that they can sometimes cause us to lose sight of our prime directive as Christ followers of deep, sacrificial, gritty, and resilient love. Now, when it comes to a passage like this and also in other places in Scripture, there can be this attractive impulse that works in us. And I, I felt this this week as well. I, I, it's easy for me to hear that I'm doing the wrong thing. Okay, I'm not loving. I'm not loving like I, ought to be sh- like I ought to be loving, like I should be loving. And so I agree that this is wrong, and so now I'm just going to try harder to love. Anybody else feel that? Like, I just, I know I'm doing the wrong thing, so I just need to try harder, and I'll do it. And, and Paul could have even said to the Corinthians something like, not just try harder, but just stop altogether, right? Like, you're speaking in tongues is getting out of hand. You're, you're way too concerned with prophesying. You're obsessed with the miraculous. So in the words of the famous Bob Newhart psychologist sketch, <laughs> stop it, right? Have you guys seen that? These people come in and are ready to receive this great wisdom, and he just says, stop it, stop doing that. But that's not what Paul says. He actually says, Keep doing it, but do it in this most excellent way. This way of love. It's not about simply doing different things, different works, or it's not about believing different words. It's about doing them in a way that gets in touch with what our core desires are. There are things that we want. There are things that we fear. And it fuels the way in which we use what God has given us. You know, some people say that love is a verb, right? Meaning that, that love doesn't really mean anything without action. We think of passages like 1 John three eighteen, 
You know, dear children, let us not just love simply in words, but also in deed and in truth. And I, I absolutely agree with that. Love must lead to action. But here's the interesting thing, is that what Paul is telling us is not, not, not every action, not even every right action, is necessarily love. So it's not just about doing the right thing. It's about a disposition. In fact, we can say the right thing, and we can do the right thing, and we can be wrong. Does this mess with you? Am I the only one that's like kind of incredulous at this? Like, we can say the right thing, we can do the right thing, and be wrong if we're not acting from a place of love, of genuine interest in the well-being of the other, of creating space for submission to what God is doing in somebody else's life. A disposition of grace and truth toward others. I, you know, I just want to be very transparent. I know many of you don't know me, but I had to face this reality in my own life and even preparing to preach today. You know, I, I was thinking I could be the best study of Scripture, the best preacher, but, and I'm certainly not either of those. I could give a great sermon, but what's my motivation? What's my underlying motivation? Is my motivation to serve you all today? Is it to encourage and admonish you and build you up? Or is it to further my ego? Is it to help me feel adequate? Or to simply please other people? Do I want to bring good name to the Miller name, right? No relation, by the way, that we know of. I'm trusting and this is hard, but I'm trusting that the very act of wrestling with these thoughts that I've named and these questions is itself a form of loving you. And Kara can attest to this. These have been some of our conversations this week. Do I just want to do a good job and get high fives if you guys do that here for preaching a good sermon? Or do I really want to encourage and admonish you to do the work of loving knowing that I'm there with you, struggling right alongside you. So I'm entrusting myself to the Lord, knowing that, that he knows my heart even better than I do, and that God's Spirit is at work even in my deepest places of need and struggle, and perhaps that is the birthplace of deep love. So this leads us to this core part of the way of love. We can show, or we can know how to love, because as Paul says at the end, we are known. We are known by love. This is how Paul understands his identity as an apostle. And I never saw this before. As he's describing what love is, I realize he's also not being very subtle about his own life. The words that he uses to define love are oftentimes the same words that he uses to describe his own ministry as an apostle. This is powerful to me. Bearing suffering in hope. Enduring for the sake of those he loves. If you look in his letters, if you look in the accounts of Acts, you see on display a way of love. So when Paul says, I will show you a, most excellent, a more excellent way, I believe he's not just describing it. He's embodying it. This is what can lead him to in chapter 11, where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is powerful language. 
But it's something that he's not just setting himself up on a pedestal to say, look how loving I am. He's saying, I'm loving because I'm a sent one of the one who is love. The one who loved perfectly. The only reason that, that pushes me toward embracing suffering and laying my life down is because I serve the one who embraced suffering and laid his life down. I serve the one who showed us what love is. Jesus who emptied himself of all privilege and power to become like us, to lay down his life for us, to submit himself to the will of the Father on our behalf. Jesus knew how to act in love. Take notice of the times where it was appropriate for him to use the power and influence that was given to him by the Holy Spirit, and there were times when it wasn't appropriate. The same power that he's tempted to use in the desert to turn stones into bread, he says no, so that he can later multiply loaves and fish and feed others. He was laying down this fear of, will God give me enough? Will I be provided for? I believe that was a real temptation, by the way. Jesus was human. He was hungry, right? 40 days without anything. And the tempter comes to him and says, well, God has given you the Holy Spirit. You're hungry. There's some stones. You can do that. It makes sense. And Jesus rejects it and says, no, that's not the way of love. That's not the way of dependence on God. I don't live on that alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of the Father. He knew. This just baffles me. I mean, Jesus is pretty great. That's really what I came here to say today. Um, The fact that he knew when to stay an extra couple days in a place to heal and when to go. The fact that he knew when to stay even when his friend Lazarus was dying. We read this uh, earlier this morning during the St. Hilda's Gospel reading. When Lazarus died, and he didn't meet people's expectations, but he loved well. That's really messed with me. Jesus knew that he was sowing into what would endure to the end, not just the miracles. Do you, do you understand this? Like, Jesus healed people, but they died, right? Like, I'm pretty sure Lazarus died again. These are not things that last. But what did last? selfless way of love. This is what endures to the end. So it causes me to think, am I giving my time and attention to what's going to last forever? I mean, Paul talks about this. He says, even faith and hope in the end aren't going to make it because we, we don't always trust in what will one day be here because once it's here, we're not hoping and trusting for it anymore, right? Like, faith and hope aren't permanent, but love is. That is what our destiny consists in is love, experiencing the love of God with him, with each other. And so we have that opportunity to step into it now. Our calling is to witness and embody that reality right now as the body of Christ. So to get into the way of love is to walk this way together. This is Paul's climactic point, and this is where I end. The way of walking together as a church is to walk in unity, and you're going to hear more about that as he continues on in his letter, that this way of unity is a way of self-sacrificial love. 
So I invite you to consider here at New Hope, what might it look like for you to walk this way of love together? Where can we pause and ask, not just what am I doing, which is a good question. (laughs) I find myself asking that question more and more, or forgetting what I was doing. Maybe that's more like it. Why am I in this room again? Not just what am I doing, but why? Why am I doing this? Is it for love? Am I doing it in love? Or does it get in the way of love? What desires are at work in you? Have you ever paused to think about that? This is a question Jesus liked to ask a lot. What do you want? He asked that several times in the Gospels. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Are we taking time to attend to what those desires are in our hearts? And let me allow me to just share this one possibility for you this week. Um, fear operates at, at, like within us at a very deep level. Fear is very real. And you may have heard this verse before, right? Um, I think it's also from 1 John. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. I, I think we can suspect that if fear is at work in us, it's likely an opportunity for God's love to be at work in its place, to be cast out. So some, because love feels like this, again, this ethereal sort of like, what, a, what is love? What, how do I live this way? Well, let me ask you this. What are you afraid of? Where do you feel fear? Where do you feel fear about not having enough? Where do you feel fear about not feeling significant or adequate? What I think you'll find is often those are things that end up motivating the actions that we take. A lot of times, the way that we work in the world, even if it looks like it's the right thing, can be wrong because it comes from a place of fear. I've experienced this in my own life a lot over the past few weeks. Even, as I mentioned, preparing here, I hope they like me, right? I hope they listen to me. I hope nobody falls asleep. But that's not love. What am I afraid might happen if I don't act in this way? That could be an opportunity for love to be at work. And what does God want you to know about that fear? It's so important that Scripture has this phrase hundreds of times. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. I'm with you. So love invites us to consider the words we speak, the words are the words we speak, the works we do, and the wants we have. There's your alliteration for the morning, so you know it was a real good sermon, right? Words, works, and wants. The way of love is to consider all of them together and to calibrate love in that space. Am I saying or doing the right thing from a position that cares about the other person more than I care about myself? This is the difficult and the beautiful call of following Jesus. And if we're to take Paul seriously, it's the only work which endures and lasts. Love, as the song says, is is not just all we need, even though that's true. It's also our beginning. It's our means, and it's our end. In the end, it will be all we have. So may God give us the strength 
the courage and opportunity to join him in this way of loving the world, loving the world as God has and does. Can we pray? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, the God who loves us unfathomably, perfectly, right now, exactly as we are where we are. We praise you that you are a God who loves us in this way. God, I I have the suspicion that if I'm struggling with places of fear in my own heart today, that that has to be true for some others here this morning. God, would we have the courage to name our fears? Would we have the courage to try to name exactly where we are right now? We all want to grow in this way of love together. We have a desire to follow you, to love as you would have us love. So would you send your spirit to meet us in our place of deepest need and fear this morning? We want to follow this most excellent way. We thank you for the example of Paul, and of course, most ultimately of Jesus, that we know what life can look like when it's fully surrendered to you and and concerned about the needs of others. We ask, God, that in the coming week, as we seek to go about our, our lives, that you would cause us to pause and be aware of the things that are at work in our hearts, that we would ask the question, why? That that would be a worshipful and prayerful question for us this week. God, why am I doing this? God, why am I finding myself getting so angry? God, why am I struggling to feel anything at all? And that you would meet us there in our questioning, in our hearts. Father, it's it's wonderful It's glorious that we can know what love is. And we ask that you would help us to experience your love and share it in a meaningful way in this coming week. And it's in Jesus' name that we all pray. Amen.